0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians 1 this morning. 2 Corinthians 1, uh, a passage that uh, I think will be, um, I know it's beneficial to me, I think will be beneficial to us as we hear God speak. 2 Corinthians 1. John Bunyan grew up in England in the 17th century. He was converted soon after marriage, and he had four children with his first wife. Uh, When she passed away... He remarried a younger woman named Elizabeth. Now, John's love for the Lord and his growing gifting as a preacher and his Baptist convictions uh, led him to pastor a church in Bedford. The problem was, according to the law of the land at the time, this sort of religious meeting outside of uh, the, the state church was illegal. Uh, He was forbidden from leading this meeting of of more than five non-related family, uh, more than five non-related members uh, present. He was a husband with four children at home, one of whom was blind. And in 1660, he was arrested for simply preaching the gospel. In 1661, Bunyan was sentenced to three months in prison, and he was told he would be freed if he would simply promise to not preach the gospel he would not. He sat in prison, unable to provide for his family, for his wife, for his children, one of whom was blind. Bunyan knew firsthand what it was like to suffer for Christ. Before the laws were changed in 1672 and he was freed, God used Bunyan in this suffering in a mighty way. As he sat in prison, he composed several tracts. He wrote a book called grace abounding, and then he started working on something that was uh, what we all know him for today, his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, This has been passed down from generation to generation in our church as a gracious gift to, to believers. Bunyan experienced hardship and suffering for the sake of Christ, but it was through this suffering that God sovereignly used him for a great work. Today, When we look at the book of 2 Corinthians, we see something similar in the life of Paul. God sovereignly comforts his people through affliction, for his purposes, and in the end, he is glorified. Let's start at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be a comfort to those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. May God bless the reading of his word. In these pictures Paul paints a clear picture of Christian suffering, of godly comfort, and of our response. He shows us through his experience what God has been doing and why God has been doing it. In verses 3 through 7, we see God's comfort through affliction. God's comfort through affliction. In this first section of Scripture, it deals heavily with comfort in light of suffering. There are a lot of uh, references to suffering, affliction, and comfort. It gets a little bit twisted, so we're going to walk through this and unpack these slowly. Uh, Paul repeatedly uses these concepts to teach the Corinthians a few important theological truths. The first truth Paul unpacks is God's plan. He unpacks God's plan. Verses 3 and 4, Paul walks us through God's plan. He explains the who, the what, the why, and the how of his plan in Christian suffering. In verse 3, we immediately see a description of God. This is, this is the who. He is the Almighty God. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of mercies, and he is the God of all comfort. So, so let's dwell for a minute here. Paul has, has linked God the Father the eternal God, directly with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Christians, this is not surprising. God, uh, the Father, and Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, But notice what else he does. He gives us a vivid description of his character. God the Father is both merciful, and he is the God of comfort, and this has been expressed clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. God is merciful as he purposed to save unworthy sinners from their just punishment. (laughs) And he is comforting as he walks with us upon our adoption and our inclusion in his people. This is, this is the same God who wrote in Isaiah 51, who the prophet Isaiah wrote of in Isaiah 51. Crying out to God in prayer, Isaiah says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah is crying out to the Lord in desperation and God answers him. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. It it is our God, Yahweh, who comforts his people. It is he who we turn to in our time of need because his very character is merciful and comforting to his people. This is the same God who is doing the action in 2 Corinthians. He has a plan. He's executing his plan. Now in verse 4, we see the what. We learn what it is that God is doing. It says, it is he who comforts us in all our affliction. It is because of who he is, because of his character, that he then acts. God is not counted merciful because he shows mercy. He is not counted a comforter because he comforts. That, that's the wrong order. It's, it's nuanced but it's important. God's character has existed from eternity past, and it is out of this character that he then acts. When we are suffering, when we are afflicted, it is this God who comforts us. We can count on this God because of his character. We don't hope that he comforts, We don't hope that he shows mercy. We know he is comforting. We know he is merciful. That is who God is. Therefore, we can trust in that promise. We can trust in his character, so therefore we can count on him to act in this way. God comforts his people. All right, so why? What is his purpose in doing this? Paul goes on in verse 4 to explain that he comforts through affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God does not comfort us for no reason. Rather, he comforts his people so that they are a blessing to others in their time of need. He is purposeful. He has laid this plan out with a reason behind it. One of the things he aims to do, one of the things he aims to accomplish is the blessing of others through us. This is, this is the how of the plan. He says we are, we are a comfort to others with the comfort of with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Uh, Pastor John often says that we are not a spiritual cul-de-sac. Things should not end with us. We, we talk about this a lot about this in our community group, uh, in our community groups here at Crossway. One of the last questions on every one of our studies is who can I share this with for encouragement or evangelism? This is true of our study of God's word. This is also true of the comfort and blessings we receive from God. Who can I share this with? Have you been afflicted and comforted by God? When you've suffered in the past, has God taught you something through that suffering, through that trial? This, this can be true of, of common suffering that happens to all people. Christians uh, have lived, who have lived through the horrors of a miscarriage have suffered greatly. God can use this tragedy to equip those people to comfort others. You can empathize, encourage, weep with, and walk with those in the same boat, pointing them to the God who has defeated death. There are Christians who have lived through loss of jobs, reputation, property, family, that have struggled with depression, lived through loneliness, through physical ailments, and a whole host of other afflictions. God uses them to comfort others, who are in the similar situation, who are in need. All of this is true, but in this context, Paul is specifically talking about affliction being brought about by the suffering for the sake of Christ. Paul has been beaten and battered and bruised, all for the sake of preaching the gospel to the lost. He's been mistreated and maligned, and through all of this, he says that God is his comfort. That not only that, but God has purposed this comfort so Paul can then be a comfort to others. This takes us to our next section. God provides comfort through affliction. He does this through his plan, and he does this for his people. It is for God's people. So God's plan for us as his people in suffering is so that we can comfort others who are afflicted. In verse 5, he says. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so that through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. All right, so let's, let's step through this one slowly. We, as Christians, are called to share in Christ's sufferings, are we not? We take up our cross and follow Jesus. Mark 8. If the world persecuted him, it will persecute us. John 15. We display suffering for the sake of of Christ as we proclaim the gospel. Colossians 1. This This is not a health and wealth gospel. The calling on the Christian is hard. We repent of sin, we reject our fleshly desires, and instead we embrace Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. As our Lord, he calls the shots in our life. If he says go, we go. If he says stop, we stop. If he says go to a hard place where you will assuredly find pain and suffering, as Christians, we say, yes, Lord. There there is no wiggle room here. If we are unwilling to suffer in his name, we deny him as the Lord of our life and show that perhaps he was never ours to begin with. If we demand comfort or preferences or an easy life above all else then we are denying our own confession as god's people we are called to share in christ's sufferings now we don't go chasing after sufferings this is this is not an unhealthy martyr complex that we have This is a mindset shift that says, despite how hard or difficult this may be, my joy is found in the Lord. I will obey him. We see this in dramatic ways in Paul's life, right? If you've been in our community groups this summer, uh, you have been reading through Acts, and in the book of Acts, we see extreme brutality. We see Paul beaten. We see Peter and James and the other apostles beaten, killed we see Stephen boldly preaching the gospel in the face of an angry Jewish mob, and then he is summarily stoned because of it. Paul writes about affliction, and he knows what he's talking about. Fast forward 2,000 years, and we see some of the same persecution in our world today. Uh, The persecuted church is repeatedly in the headlines. We see ISIS uh, beheading videos becoming a regular event online. We see our brothers and sisters in the Middle East tortured and murdered for their faith. This is is real persecution, and this is horrific persecution. They are truly sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings. This is not the only type of suffering for the sake of Christ. In less severe, but in very real ways, we experience this ourselves. We face rejection from friends. We face ostracism from family as we seek to share Christ with them, often causing deep family wounds, Uh, In our own country, we see the erosion of religious liberty right before our eyes as bakers and florists and photographers have lost their livelihoods because they will not violate their conscience. They believe that they serve God, not man. I can't help of think but uh, Kim Davis today. Um, She's the clerk in Rowan County, Kentucky that's been all over the news because she cannot issue a marriage license to same-sex couples without violating her conscience. She has stopped issuing licenses altogether, and a judge put her in jail this week. Now, the situation is complicated in terms of employment law, of elected officials, uh, but whether or not you agree with her course of action, or her reaction to this, this is a a huge step backwards in religious liberty in the country. She is now sitting in an American jail cell as a reaction to her acting out her faith. She has decided she will not bow to the idol of sexual immorality, but she will instead bow to her Lord despite the cost. She is sharing in Christ's sufferings today. Do we have this same conviction? If it comes between losing our job and our livelihood or denying our Lord, will we still follow Christ or will we compromise this Probably would have seemed like a stupid question in America 20 years ago, but more and more today it's becoming our reality. Our culture continues to dive into a moral cesspool, uh, and we will increasingly, therefore, look different. We must be prepared to share in Christ's sufferings. He goes on to say in verse 5, As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So it's not only in his suffering that we share, but we also share in his comfort. Again, he is our merciful and gracious God who has sent his own son to us. He is the one who comforts us. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. All right, so so what does Paul mean when he says that that his suffering is for your comfort and salvation. Think about what Paul has been doing. He's been traveling from town to town. He's been preaching the gospel, and he's been planting churches. So so what happens when he does that, right? People are converted, and Paul gets his butt kicked. So there's a very real sense in which Paul is suffering so that salvation is brought to the people. He is sacrificing his health He's sacrificing his safety so that Christ may be made known in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Paul is not atoning for sin here, but Paul is suffering so that Christ's atoning work is made known and proclaimed, and salvation is brought to people who have never heard the name of Jesus. He is afflicted for their salvation, and he is also afflicted for their comfort in their own affliction. These Christians that he is dealing with will endure the same type of suffering Paul is currently seeing. They are to be comforted by Paul's words when they are patiently enduring the same suffering. As Christians, we need to hear this. We will suffer, and one of the means God uses to comfort us and to help us endure is the suffering and comfort of others that have gone on before us. In uh, my church history class right now, we're studying the martyrs of the early church, and one of these is Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop in Smyrna uh, in the 2nd century, and Roman persecution was running rampant there under Marcus Aurelius. In 55 AD, their gaze landed on Smyrna, and Germanicus, an elderly Christian, was brought to trial. He was ordered to recant his belief in Christ, under the pain of torture and death. But Germanicus boldly refused. When he did this, an angry mob called for his death and the death of other leaders in the church. They, they shouted, death to the atheists! And by atheists, they referred to the monotheistic Christians. The Romans had tons of gods. You say you only have one god, that's like saying you have no gods. They followed that up with, bring Polycarp. Gusto Gonzalez tells of what happens next. He says, the pro-council who resided at his trial tried to persuade him to worship the emperor, urging him to consider his advanced age. When Polycarp refused, the mob responded, out with the atheist. To this, Polycarp responded by pointing back at the crowd and saying, yes, out with the atheists. Uh, Side note, I texted my friend this exchange this week, and I said Polycarp would have been a beast on Twitter with that kind of snark under pressure. Again, the judge insisted, promising that if he would swear by the emperor and curse Christ, he would go free. But Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? What Faith, what courage, what does a story like this do for us? What is affliction like this? When we hear of suffering like this, what does this do for us? This is our Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other moment. This is, this is our brave heart moment. We see him in the face of certain torture and in certain death, standing up there and saying, okay, I'm going to take shots. I'm not going to deny my Lord. This is the type of faith that we pray for when we profess Christ. How could I curse my King who saved me? This comforts us and this encourages us in our own affliction. This is how it works. This is what God has intended. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Paul goes on to further explain, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We as God's people are suffering and are comforted through the affliction according to God's plan. We share in this together. We're on the same team. We are afflicted for the sake of spreading the gospel, and we are comforted, so that we can be a comfort to others. All right, so next Paul turns his thoughts toward the purpose of affliction. The purpose of affliction, verses 8 through 10. Starting in verse 8, he says, For for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here we see God's purpose. We see God's purpose. As we press deeper into Paul's argument, we learn that God not only has a purpose in our comfort, but he also has a purpose behind our suffering. Paul suffered greatly in Asia. Now, now when this occurred or what the circumstances were are a little hazy. Some speculate that this is Acts 19 in Ephesus, uh, but honestly, we have no way of being 100% certain that's the persecution he spoke of. He was beaten many times. This particular event was severe. He says he was so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He wants to write to the church in Corinth and let them know why why is that? Paul here is giving them a real world example of an abstract theology. God is sovereign over all things, right? God is not ever the author of sin, but God is always over all things that happen in this world. He is the sovereign king, he is the sovereign ruler, and nothing happens apart from his hand. We hold this truth intention. God is not the author of sin. God is the sovereign king. We hold this intention, but we hold it firmly. God is sovereign. And Paul was afflicted because this sovereign king had a good purpose. God intended this beating by wicked men who will be held accountable for their sinful actions so that Paul would rely on the power of God and not on himself. God intended this beating by wicked men who will be held accountable for their sinful actions so that Paul would rely on the power of God and not on the power of himself. What a powerful statement. We, we tend to say trite things like God is love or God wants what, what's best for you, but, but his thoughts are not like our thoughts and his ways are not like our ways. The book of Genesis describes Joseph in glowing terms. He is upright, he is obedient, submissive and blameless. But God purposed his life of suffering that he may accomplish his purposes. Genesis 50:20. As you know, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God ordained suffering caused God-ordained results. And it was done in a way that none of us would have preferred. His ways are not like our ways. The book of Job describes a man. It says he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. God ordained all kinds of calamity in his life as a test of faithfulness. And in the end, Job was turned toward, and utterly dependent upon God. God's ways are not like our ways. Christ himself, perfect, holy, blameless in every way. He did nothing to deserve punishment or judgment, but God had a different plan in mind. Jesus stood in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. God intended this suffering for a purpose, his Ways are not like our ways. It isn't always comfortable. It isn't always easy. But in the end, it's always good. Romans eight twenty eight. Everybody knows as we, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But he is speaking in this passage in the context of suffering. And in verse 29, we see it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good, that we are conformed to the image of Christ, not that we are given a comfortable life. All things work together for this, even if that means we suffer. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Is this, is this how you look at suffering? Is this, is this how you look at hard times? When bad things happen, is this where you turn to? In times of, in times of our deepest need, when it seems that all is lost and we don't know what we're going to do, is this where we're looking? Are we looking on our own power and strength? That will be deficient. We will fall short. We will instead look to the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. It could be that he is purposing this suffering in your life so that you rely on God and not on yourself. God, the one who raises the dead. Look to Jesus. This brings us to God's promise. God's promise. Verse 9. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul was facing death and turned to God for deliverance. He was put in a place of utter despair. And in that place he cried out to the one that he knew could spare him. What does he base this on? What does he base this belief that God could spare him on? We see it right here in the text. It's the God who raises the dead. Paul sees in the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul sees a God who is greater and more powerful than anything here on earth. He sees the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who gives life and breath, the one who last week the psalmist said his glory, that he set his glory above the heavens, and the heavens are the work of his fingers. God absolutely has the power to rescue in all situations. And, and in this case, he chose to physically rescue Paul, right? Paul was delivered, but he goes on to say that he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Verse 10, in this context, Paul is speaking of physical deliverance. Yes, uh, he, his hope is in God who has delivered him in the past and he can deliver him in the future. But it's it's more than that. His gaze goes beyond this world and into the next. Verse 9, God raises the dead. Verse 10, he will deliver us again. There is more than a physical death that Paul is looking at here. He's looking forward to a spiritual death and a spiritual deliverance. We see this idea of deliverance for God's people repeated throughout the Bible. Genesis 6 God decides to punish the world for wickedness, but through Noah he delivers his people. God rescued Noah and established a covenant with him. In Exodus, God again delivers his people, this time from the hands of the Egyptians. God shows himself to be faithful by supernaturally pulling them out of the land, and then he establishes his covenant with them. They are his rescued people. This is the pattern God uses. It continued in Israel, right? God's people are given a king and delivered from the people around them, and God establishes his covenant with David. They are his people. And and then finally, we see in Christ. We see our ultimate deliverance. We have been born in sin. We are wicked, and from birth, we oppose God in every way. We live for ourselves, and apart from his grace, we die in our sin. God purposed a savior a deliverer that would come to us, that would live a perfect life for us and would die a death instead of us. And he established his covenant with us. This perfect God man was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. He was foreshadowed through the entire Old Testament. This was God's purpose and God's plan from the beginning. It was his promise to us. And in Jesus, we see this promise fulfilled for us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Do not miss this. Paul is not talking about a God that can merely rescue our physical bodies. But he is pointing forward to a day when sin and death will be no more. He is pointing forward to a time when the old passes away, when the new comes. For those who have repented of their sin and set their trust on Christ, he has promised to deliver them from death and punishment He will dwell with them forever. For those who have not, only judgment awaits. Do not forget this in your suffering. God has promised us all things in Christ. And God purposes our suffering so that we rely on him in all things. Do not waste your suffering, but look to Christ and to the promises found in him. In this passage, we've seen comfort through affliction. We've seen the purposes of affliction. And finally, we see Paul urging for prayer for the afflicted. Prayer for the afflicted. Verse 11. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Here, Paul specifically asks for prayer uh, in light of affliction. This this seems obvious, right? We, we We pray for those in need. But I think Paul has some specificity and urgency in mind when he, says, when he says this. He is asking for prayers on his behalf as he goes through suffering in gospel ministry. He seems to be saying that we should pray with the expectation that God will answer, answer the prayer. So, so a couple things we know in this passage in regards to prayer. First, what types of things should we be praying for? Well, for one, we should be praying for deliverance, right? Paul cried out to God for deliverance. He's asking them to pray to God with him, saying, God, please help this brother in his time of need. God, please deliver him from this. But I think think there's more that Paul is asking for. In verse 6, he speaks of patiently enduring. Pray that he endures through suffering. Pray that he finishes well that he does not forsake the faith, but rather turns to God. How much more important is this for us to finish well? Yes, we pray for deliverance, but in an even greater way, we pray for strength and patience and endurance and faith. We pray that no matter what happens to us, we keep relying on God, that we endure to the end, and so that at the end of our lives, we can look back at a faith that was genuine. I think of those who we know that have shown this to us, that have shown this to be true. Our friend uh, Lisa, who right on through the end kept praising God, thanking God, and endured to the end. She suffered greatly, but she trusted her God. She is experiencing eternal joy forever with Jesus right now. Yes, we pray for physical healing and we mourn with her loss, but how much greater the reward she received because she endured. God saves us. God keeps us. It is all by God's power. But one of the means that that God uses is the prayers of his people. Pray for faithfulness. Pray for endurance. Second thing we see in this verse regarding prayer is the ultimate purpose. It is, quote, so that many will give thanks On our behalf, for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. We pray so that many give thanks, and then ultimately, God gets the glory. This phrase is what grounds the entire passage. Our suffering, our comfort, our faith, and our deliverance is for one ultimate purpose the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? Right? To glorify God, enjoy Him forever. We pray so that God is glorified when He answers prayer. Our theology of comfort, of suffering, and of sovereignty ultimately leads to our doxology, praising our God. A passage like, like this deals heavily with <laughs> theological themes, um, but it is not detached from real life. It influences how we think and act in real situations that we are facing. It cannot be merely understood in a vacuum, but it requires us to apply this to our lives about a month ago pastor john announced that he was stepping down this is obviously a big blow to our church and don't get me wrong i am not equating the situation that our church is facing with persecution at all we are excited for pastor john we are praying for john as we send him out to serve christians in the world this is exciting and we are not facing persecution and resistance here but we are facing a time of hardship, a time where we should be looking to God in full reliance. Um, after the announcement came out, my cousin, who's a Baptist pastor in Kentucky, gave me a call. He uh, overlapped with John a little bit at um, Southern. He follows our church on Twitter. And when he saw the announcement, he called me to encourage me. And this is, this is the text that he brought. Um, God indeed works his good purposes, even in hard times, so that we rely Not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What truth and comfort for us right now in this verse. For me personally, this was liberating. Crossway will still go on. We love John. We appreciate everything that he's done for us, but we're not here following a man. We are following our creator, our Lord Jesus. We will still come here expecting to hear a word from God. Whoever's in this pulpit will still open up the scriptures, will still systematically work through books of the Bible, still explain and apply what God has said. We will still confess salvation alone, or salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Even as this is emotional for us, and even as we may feel overwhelmed, we know that God is working through this situation. We don't have to trust in our own power In our own ability, in our own strength. We look and we rely fully on Him and not on ourselves. God has a purpose in all circumstances. God comforts us in our affliction, and He alone receives glory as He sovereignly works His good purposes in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, you are faithful, and you are the God of mercy and comfort. Lord, we see here in your word that you, have, that you have promised to deliver us and ultimately one day we look forward to the day where we see you face to face, where we see our ultimate deliverance. God, I pray that we rely on you, not on ourselves as we go through affliction, that we are comforted by you and that in turn we are a comfort to others. God, help us to, to see your sovereign hand at work in all things, to love and trust that you are a good God who has good purposes for his people. We love you. We thank you for this time together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.